Welcome to the Veterinarian Success Podcast. I'm Isaiah Douglas. I am joined by Tony Ferraro, president of Vet Billing, and we are going to talk all about what Vet Billing does and the opportunity that's out there. So, Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Isaiah, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about a high level what Vet Billing is and how did you get started? What is kind of your mission? Uh, vet billing got started as a new vertical in 2014 for, uh, you know, total financial services is the, is the corporate. And we do billing and collecting for a lot of different verticals. And in 2014, my partner in life, Suzanne Cannon, you know, came to me with, well, back up a little bit. When I met Suzanne Cannon, I was a bachelor and loved animals, but didn't have time for animals because I was never home. So when I met her, I inherited a Clydesdale and a Schnauzer. There you go. <laughs> and, and then as she, um, you know, was going through the, the veterinary care for her Clydesdale, her uh, vet said, yeah, I just wish people would pay what they owe and she was continually talking to her and realized that the veterinarian had a lot of outstanding debt and she wasn't collecting on and then one of the barners uh, boarders at the barn saying yeah i have you know a big bill with uh we'll say sarah the vet and Suzanne goes, well, why don't you just pay her a little bit each month? And she goes, I didn't know I could do that. I thought I had to pay the whole bill off at once. So instead of not paying her a little bit every month, she was not paying anything. And the vet would say, God, I wish they would just send me 50 bucks a month or something on their bill. So then Suzanne came to me and said, we got to, you know, come up with a solution for this. So it originally started for the equine industry to help the equine industry. Uh, but we got a lot of resistance from the equine industry. So then we just went into the small animal practice and we got a big acceptance in the small animal area of veterinary care to help veterinarians who are having a hard time with clients being able to afford their services. And we manage the payment plans for the veterinarians. So if somebody goes into a vet and say has a thousand dollar bill and they can't pay it all up front uh the veterinarian will get uh, whatever percentage down that they can get down and uh we manage the payment plan for them and it's all done electronically a debit and a credit card or checking account and we handle all the follow-up work of uh you know if a payment returns for insufficient funds or they close their account or they get a new credit card so it's evolved into helping with payment plans, but it's also then involved into doing prepayment plans, wellness plan billing, and pet savings accounts. So it's really a new vertical to help the veterinary industry handle accounts receivable that they're afraid to handle because maybe they've been burned in the past. Sure. That's a, a great explanation. And there's a lot to unpack there, which is why the, the beauty of a long format podcast is here. And we can kind of dive into those different pieces. So one question, why did equine push back and not be as receptive? Is it because traditionally the clientele, if they you know are, are, are taking and getting 
equine medicine done, they maybe have more discretionary income or what was the, the reason why they didn't want to embrace what you're providing? I think it's mainly, and it's the same maybe with uh, mobile small animal vets. Everything's so mobile and they're still used to just stuffing envelopes with in, uh, with invoices and mailing. They believe, just like we got pushed back with the you know, small animal, they believe people won't go to having their account electronically debited, which to me makes no sense because everybody has their account electronically yeah. debited for one thing or another. And it's really just a mindset, a, a business model change that even small animals still are given pushback on it, mainly because they've been burned in the past and they're still stuck in that old business model of uh, accounts receivable. And it's a totally different beast now. And I think they're doing a big injustice not embracing the new technologies, either to electronically debit their customers' accounts on a monthly basis, either doing it themselves in-house or outsourcing it to a, another company that can do it. When we talked a little bit, you brought up a couple big issues that you see within veterinary medicine. Would you say the, the accounts receivable piece is the biggest issue or is there something else that's more you know underlying underneath that from why there's so much struggle for people to afford care? Well, I think it, it truly began, say, 20, 30 years ago. Veterinarians used to always offer payment plans. And they handled everything in the house. They stuffed the envelopes with the invoices and mailed the invoices out. Yes, they got burned. Then came along third-party financing about 30 years ago. All of a sudden, they come in and say, hey, look, We'll approve or pre-approve your clients for a, quote, loan, and we'll give you the money up front. But for doing that, we're going to take 5 to 15% off the top. So it's going to cost you 5 to 15%. And the veterinary practice went, oh, wow. So I don't have any risk, but I lose 5 to 15%. That's worth it. So then all of a sudden, third-party financing took over. The veterinarians stopped doing payment plans, but now they lost total control of who they can or cannot help, basically. It was these third-party financing companies that are dictating which pets the veterinarian can help. And I think it's done a disservice, in part, to the industry. Third-party finance is needed, and it's always going to be needed. And it's been a great asset for the veterinary profession. But I think they've uh, held on to it too tight. And it's caused uh, a lot of um, animosity between the pet owner and the vet, and the vet and the pet owner, when if they don't get approved for third-party financing, then the veterinarian doesn't want anything to do with them. So then the pet owner says, well, it's all about money. And the economics of today show that just because somebody does not get approved for third-party financing does not mean they cannot afford your service. Only about 40% of the people get approved for third-party financing. So what is happening with the other 60%? 
and just because somebody doesn't have the cash right now up front doesn't mean they can't afford your services it's just that they can't afford it right now but they have the income coming in to afford it in monthly payments so it's like the analogy of you have somebody who is illiquid or insolvent and we know if they're insolvent yes they're probably not going to be able to afford your services up front and they're not even going to be able to afford to pay, make monthly payments so the insolvent people that's where the charitable funds and angel funds help them with veterinary care but the illiquid they don't have the cash now but they have the income stream to pay it over time that's where the veterinary profession is losing a lot of potential sales by not servicing the illiquid yeah that's a, a great point and we're gonna touch on some of the case studies and examples a little bit later but you mentioned third-party financing and i don't want to spend the whole time on it but can you for those that maybe are still kind of wondering okay how are you different than third-party financing can you explain the difference the third-party financing is actually going to set up a loan and it or it's a, some call it like a medical credit card the if it's say it's a thousand dollar bill they apply for the financing and they either get approved for the entire thousand dollars and the third-party financing company will say we'll send $900 to the practice because they're taking, say, 10% off the top. And the consumer now owes the third-party financing. And a lot of times it might be six months no finance charge or 12 months no finance charge. However, if you don't make your monthly payments on time and or you don't pay it off, in that six or 12 month period, then the consumer gets hit with up to like a 28% interest retroactively. So the consumer is penalized even more. But the veterinary practice doesn't have to worry about it because it's not their responsibility. They already have their money. Where we're different is we're saying, look, the consumer is already struggling for finances. So we don't want to put them in a position that they're going to be in a debt hole and never be able to get out of so we're saying that we're not giving the practice the money up front the practice is extending the credit themselves and they are waiting to get their money over time but they're not going to lose that five to fifteen percent the third-party financing companies charge we don't charge the practice anything to use our service the pet owner pays uh, our fees. And it's basically a $25 enrollment fee, and then we add $3 to each payment. So no matter how large the, the, the amount is, if we're debiting $25 a month or we're debiting $1,000 a month, all right, it's still a $25 enrollment fee. So it's more conducive to the pet owner where they don't have all these outstanding fees, but then again, the, the practice doesn't pay any fees either they still retain a hundred percent of their practice fees because they should because they're extending the credit yeah that makes sense so right there if if someone's embracing third-party financing and they were able to transition there's a lift of you know five to fifteen 
percent in revenue just by kind of maybe reevaluating what options they're providing. Can you talk about payment plans and maybe the challenges and what's been the issue? Because if I'm sitting here listening, that sounds great. Like who doesn't want to grow revenue by, you know, five to 15% without really doing anything other than maybe just making a slight tweak to a process of how you're collecting from those current clients and patients. Correct. What, so yeah, where, where's the, where's the like, oh, well, when they don't pay or how do you know how often you're going to then have to write those off? And is that going to then offset and make it actually worse than, than when the, 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 uh, I guess exposure is on the third party. Right. I understand the third-party financing is always going to be needed, all right? and they have a place in the veterinary profession. It, you would have to run basically five to fifteen percent delinquent for it not to pay for itself to do it in to have basically in-house payment plans. What's been the traditional delinquency rate that you've seen working with veterinary hospitals and clinics and practices when they've implemented? your structure from a payment plan versus third-party financing? It varies by demographics, but as a company overall, we only run about 3 to 5% delinquent through all our verticals. For veterinarians, we have a lot of practices that have zero delinquency, and there's other practices that might be running 10 15% delinquent. But you have to think of that, and that's what scares everybody. They're going 10 to 15% delinquent, but it's 10 to 15% of money that was walking out the door. So you're still getting 90 to 85% of new money that you are allowing to walk out the door. We have one of our case studies. It's an eight DVM uh, practice. It's a low cost practice, but they were still having problems servicing all the clients that come into their practice. So they started in 2000, uh, September 2017 with us. For 2018, they started in 2017, and they decided to let anybody who came in the door, if they couldn't afford to pay up front, that they were going to get a down payment and put them on a payment plan. So for 2018, they gained 707 new clients from that, totally new clients. And they increased their revenue by $413,000. Okay, so I can't remember offhand exactly. Say it was they have fifty thousand dollars in bad debt. So people look at that fifty. Well, that's fifty thousand dollars I didn't collect. And I say no, that's four hundred and thirteen thousand dollars you did collect. Absolutely. And even if I would equate it to, you could spend fifty thousand dollars advertising, you know, and sending out mailers or whatever kind of advertising the practice does. They have no problem spending $50,000 in advertising or some other resource. But then they don't look at, okay, the bad debt. It's just a price of doing business, the cost of doing business. I was going to go to the same direction with just from a marketing perspective. If you would have came in as a a marketing consultant and, and sat across the table and said, hey, we're going to be able to drive 707 new clients and f- over $400,000 in revenue, and it's going to cost you $50,000, would you want to do that? I don't think there's one person that would say no. Correct. Correct. And that's the mindset. It's they're, they're so used to, they're, they're used to, all right, I did a payment plan and I got stiff for $1,000. Okay, that's one person. What about all the other 
99 people that didn't stiff you. And it opens up the door back to your point to that whole group of, of people still love their pet, still want to see treatment. They just don't have the money up front. So similar to a lot of things in life now, think of it like a subscription almost. And they're going to come in and they're not going to be able to pay all up front. But over time, being able to collect that and having that revenue come in, that's fantastic. And how many times are they going to be able to then go to someone else or maybe their friends or family that are asking that question? They're sitting around having a conversation around pets and they bring up the fact that, hey, this you know veterinary office ABC was able to do this for me. And they're going to be like, oh, well, mine doesn't do that. That's weird. And you know that could help with building a better reputation in the community you're in. So that makes a ton of sense from from my vantage point. One one question on the down payment, how do you calculate or what's the the standard down payment? So is it going to be different depending on if it's $1000 or 200 because you talked about the the 25 or $30 initial cost to set that up. What's the down payment typically structured? Oh well, with our business model that we're trying to educate the professional on, we give the total control to the practice. We let them determine how they want to, what their rules and regulations for payment plans want to be. We'll give them recommendations. Like we have a credit score tool that they could 24-7 go online and do a soft credit check on their clients. And it would instantaneously bring back uh, a letter grade of A through G, A being the best of a credit. So if I said, okay, as I, you came in, we're, we'll, we'll do a payment plan for you. These are our rules and regulations. It has to be over a certain dollar amount, the procedure. You have to put X percentage down. Uh, it can be no longer than X number of month. And if they're doing the credit check, they might say, and it requires us to do a soft credit check. If you meet all these criteria, we will we can give you a payment plan. So if they do the credit check, then we'll give them a recommendation. And it might say, if you come back, say a C, it might say, okay, take 30% down and do a six month payment plan. It's only a recommendation. We tell the practices, you decide what you want to, uh, how you want to structure the payment plan. A lot of practices don't use the credit score because they know that the, the market that they're in, that everybody has a low credit score. So it doesn't matter. Other practices use it, but, other, but they might say, no, I want, 50% down and no longer six months. Or other practices might say, I want the minimum is 25% down. Uh, we had payment plans for two or three months. We've gotten payment plans for 85 months. It just depends. We've gotten payment plans for a couple hundred dollars. We've gotten payment plans for $25,000. And that's where that's another difference between third-party financing. They'll, they'll limit to the dollar amount where the practice doesn't have to do that if they want to extend that credit. But then again, I understand the third party financing is needed, especially if cash flow at the practice is, is bad. Cash flow is so bad at the practice, there might be other problems. So again, our system is trying to give control back to the practice so they can determine who they want to help, not let third party financing companies determine who they can help. Along the same lines, uh, when we initially connected and chatted, you really talked about with that upfront payment, thinking about what's the cost per minute to provide that service. Can you expound upon that and share with the audience what you really mean by that and maybe help give them some ideas of how they could help 
implement a, a payment plan like you're talking about? Yeah, the um, if the pra- the practices, and this is another problem uh, that even Michael Dix, who uh, was the economist for the ABMA, has written a, a bunch of articles recently about the veterinary profession. One of the things he says is they don't know their number and or there's no standardization of numbers in the industry. And one thing I believe that every practice should know is what is your cost per minute to operate your practice? It's very easy to calculate. All you're doing is taking your profit and loss statement, taking your expenses from your profit and loss statement, adding in the cost of goods sold, and dividing it by the number of minutes you're opened in a year. So say, for instance, you have, say you're, Cost and it's usually anywhere from maybe two dollars to I think we got some practices that might be ten dollars per minute if they're 24/7 emergency practices. So say your cost per minute is five dollars per minute. Now that then that includes the DVM salary, your staff salaries, all your operating costs. You know it's just coming right from your P&L. No, it's not including the uh, any draws that the practice owner might take but it does include the salary and all operating expenses. So say it's $5 per minute. And for simplicity's sakes, say it's you do a procedure and it takes a total of 60 minutes, maybe pre-op, the operation, and post-op. takes 60 minutes. So say it's $5, you're $5 per minute. So that's $300 it's costing you to do that procedure. And say you operate, say you're charging $1,000. So if you get 30% down, you're getting $300 right away and you're covering all your costs. So the other $700 is pure profit. If they make one payment or they make all the payments, you're still ahead of the game. So if practices know this, their cost per minute, they can say, okay, we know on average that we need to get a 30% down payment to cover our cost. And then putting somebody on a payment plan isn't as scary of a business model. So for instance, if you do five payment plans per week at the $5 per minute and say they're all $60, you got $260,000 in new revenue. Your average cost per minute, you know, the procedures cost you $78,000. You get the seventy-eight thousand. Take you say to take the thirty percent down. You get the seventy-eight thousand dollars. So the balance left on these payment plans, say for three to twelve months, is one hundred eighty-two thousand dollars. Say you only collect eighty percent of that, so you get another one hundred forty-five thousand. So you've received a total of like two hundred twenty-three thousand dollars in revenue, which is eighty-six percent of your total procedure cost. So you have a net profit of basically $145,000. And I'm just trying to get people, they need to think that way. But a lot of them are so involved in the day-to-day operations that they don't look at their financials. And it's a very easy calculation. Yeah, and I will make sure in the the show notes to include the calculation. But Tony, is there, like, do you have it written out or is there something on your website where they can go and grab that? Well, actually, I'm trying to look to try to get a, that calculator on our website. Okay. I have it. I have it laid out. I can send it to you. Yeah. Um, if anyone wants it, I'll uh, I'll make sure that your 
information is we'll get that at the end. But yeah, if anyone wants it, absolutely, we'll make sure they have it. But yeah, we're we're redoing our CE course because uh, we have a race approved CE course. We're redoing our CE course, and in a couple of months, it'll, it'll be in our CE course. Yeah, but I I think that little segment right there, um, it, people are probably their heads spin a little bit trying to think through it. If you're driving or doing something and hearing a lot of numbers, but the the end result that amount of revenue that can come back into the practice is staggering. And again, we'll get to another case study here in a second, but I continue to hear, like you talked about that veterinarians don't know their numbers, that they hate having any sort of money talk with clients or the front desk doesn't want to have these talks and explain anything. If I'm listening to this and I love, again, love what you're saying, I want to embrace it. Have you had people push back because they don't feel like their staff can properly execute on following up or it's going to be too much paperwork or headaches. How do you kind of disarm that um, fear for those that are having a conversation with you about setting up a payment plan? That is exactly, exactly right. We do get pushback and we have to do a lot of education. Uh, Sometimes I wonder what they're teaching in schools these days, but just basic math. And I don't mean to disparage anybody at the front desk, you know, of the of a practice, but it's really not that hard to educate. But we have to come up ourselves with phone scripts and or what they should put on their website. And it's what I said before, you know, we've even told practices, here's a little cheat card. So if somebody calls in and says, hey, do you offer payment plans? This is how you can answer it. Yes, we do, but these are our rules and regulations, and just they just read them off. If you meet these criteria, yes, we can offer you a payment plan. A lot of practices are afraid to even say they offer payment plans because they have that philosophy that, well, if I, t- if I say we do payment plans, then everybody's going to want a payment plan, and that is not the case. I don't have a case study yet, but we're hearing from our practices that if they advertise that they offer payment plans, a good portion of those people are coming in because you're advertising, you offer payment alternatives, I'll say. They're coming to you because you offer alternatives. That doesn't mean you're going to use it every time. They are paying cash for their normal visits and things like that, but they're just coming to you knowing that if they do get that large bill, that you do offer alternatives where the practice down the street does not. So again, it's a mentality and it's a business model mindset that needs to be changed. And if they do it, if they embrace it, the rewards are astronomical. Well, let's talk about some of the rewards. Do you have another case study that you want to share? And I'll mention if we go to the website, vetbilling.com, there's five case studies for people to review, take it away, Tony, and share another case study with one that has shown the power of, of what this can do. Well, one of them was with uh, their clients weren't qualifying for third-party financing. They um, they were what a 13 uh, doctor practice. And again, they just started to offer everybody payment plans. And uh, within, I think it was a year, they were getting almost $11,000 per month from their payment plans month after month. Uh, one of the other one is, it was discounting. What was the discounting? Yeah, we had a case study for discounting. 
that the practice was discounting up to $1,400 a month. And they decided to stop the discounting and put people on payment plans. So over nine months, they were able to reduce to stop all discounting it went from 1400 to almost zero i can't say it was zero and in nine months and whatever fourteen hundred dollars did i say fourteen thousand i meant fourteen hundred fourteen hundred dollars a month of discounting um over 12 months added up you know how much money they're saving the the case studies there again are, are really powerful it covers a wide range of of different types of situations whether it's you know, the fear of not absolutely, you know, getting all the test results done for someone because you're afraid that they're not going to pay for it. Like you talked about discounting or just doing free work. I hear that a lot that people are just like, well, I didn't even want to, you know, suggest it because I know that they wouldn't be able to afford it. So we just kind of ran it on our own and then use those results to hopefully try to treat as well as, as we can. Right. I just, right. I look at it as when I go to my doctor, he doesn't give me a discount. So is discounting telling the consumer, well, you marked it up too much? That's why you're discounting. Why not just stop the discounting and say, okay, I'll take a percentage down and I'll put you on a monthly payment plan. To me, that makes more sense. Yeah. And all you have to, you know, again, it's going to come back to training, but you just relay it in a way very simply, like what we do is really important. And I want to ensure that you have the best care possible. And if you don't feel comfortable paying for it up front, we do offer a payment plan and we can make sure that you get the payment plan that fits for you because we control that in-house instead of shipping it off to someone else. Correct. Would you like to have a little bit of time to, to chat with so-and-so at the front desk to set this up and see if we can make something work? Correct. Right there in the room, you can have that conversation and not be afraid because at the end of the day, you're going to actually be able to provide better care. And we both know that the whole compassion fatigue and hearing well, I can't afford that, or no, I don't want to do that for my pet because I can't afford it. This can help solve some of those issues to make sure that the quality of care can increase. I agree. And it doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt when your practice revenue goes up too. Like that's a that's a benefit and it should go up. Right. And I, I totally agree with that, especially with the compassion fatigue and economic euthanasia, that how offering your clients payment alternatives, be it third party financing payment plans, prepayment plans, wellness plans, pet savings accounts. If you offer them all to your clients, then how that will reduce the staff stress, because I, you know a lot of this compassion feeding has to do with finances and people not being able to pay and the pushback that veterinarians get from the pet owners, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can eliminate a financial barrier then that compassion fatigue is going to greatly drop. If I, as they say, these are all our options to pay. And if you still can't pay, at least I feel good about myself that I gave you all the options. But if I have to say, well, I'm sorry, Isaiah, can you go to your family and ask them for the money? Can you go, can you sell something to uh, raise the money? Or why don't you go to a GoFundMe page and, and raise the money? How demoralizing that is for the pet owner to hear that. And why would the practice even want to say something like that? You know, that's the mindset I'm trying to get the practices to get away from. 
if you give them the solutions and they still can't use your servers afford your service well at least you did your best and you can feel good about yourself yeah so switching gears a little bit just from your vantage point and we can broaden the scope of the way the question is answered where do you see innovation in the business models of veterinary medicine outside of payment plans well from a technology standpoint everybody right now if they have a credit card merchant account which they all do if they don't i don't know how they're in business but most credit card processing companies can handle this monthly you know reoccurring charge so they can very easily set it up themselves it's very easy to debit somebody's bank account or credit card the software is out there either to do it yourself and there's other companies out there that can do it for you the problem comes in is if it returns um, how do you do it? it takes payroll hours to follow up so if the practice has the uh, staffing then that's they can do it themselves but what I see is the practices are more inclined to put their resources instead of into the payment technology they're more inclined to put their resources in the technology that is like the latest and greatest app and or now telemedicine instead of putting the money where they can see a or putting their energies in an area where they can see a direct return and a direct impact to their business right away it's all and and a lot of it i think has to do with the profession the consultants in the industry, that's all they talk about. They want to talk about the latest, greatest app. They want to talk about telemedicine. And they're not helping the practices increase revenue. To me, all these latest, greatest apps and everything are for the clients that always pay cash all the, all the time. And or they're going to take away from the practice's profit margins, which is consultations and surgeries. So. I think the profession as a whole, though they say they want to help, I think they're stuck into the latest, greatest technology when sometimes it's just the simplest thing. How do I get people to afford my services? It's an interesting take. Um, I'm a fan as I learn more about telemedicine uh, with some of the ideas of just being able to offer similar to, again, increased revenue, just offer a subscription service where after hours, if someone has questions or don't feel like they want to come in or want to pay to have that consultation, and maybe it's a, a simple request, start charging them $10 a month and, and implement some technology to grow revenue. And then hopefully that will then lead to more appointments in cases that are going to be higher revenue appointments than just something coming in saying, eh, well, nothing's really wrong. And you can still address that. And so I like that telemedicine idea and concept. But I go back to what you just said and agree as well from the standpoint of if you do this right and have someone be able to afford your services and grow your revenue, you can then reinvest back in your business into some of these other cool things. But make sure you're going to A, use them and have the, the systems built out. But shoot, how are you going to be able to afford some of these new things if the answer is still, I don't have the ability to pay for your services. It doesn't matter what else you're offering. If they can't pay, they can't pay. So you need to be able to provide them the, the ability to pay for all the new cool services that you can offer. Right. I, I, I agree that, you know, telemedicine is going to have its place, but I'm worried about that you keep on 
if you're nickel and diamond me, the consumer, for everything, then I have less money to come in to where the higher profit margins are. I think telemedicine is good for your clients that aren't coming in or for, to help for uh, maybe getting some compliance up. But if I'm paying 25 to $50 for a call for telemedicine, that's $25, $50 I have less to come into the veterinary practice. So is it really going to help increase revenue? To me, it's okay. What is the veterinary practice getting out of that $25, $50 consult? for whatever it is, however long time it is, and versus they could be getting a couple hundred dollars for that same amount of time, you know, doing something in, in the practice. I don't know. I could be totally wrong, but I just worry about too much emphasis is being put on the latest, greatest app and, and, and telemedicine and not on how to help people pay for the service. No, and I, I respect your opinion, I think it's very valid and it raises some important questions that, that people need to kind of noodle on and think about because, yeah, at the end of the day, the whole idea is that you're taking care of pets and if the, the people bringing them in are not able to pay for the services, you're really not able to accomplish your ultimate mission and you need to address that situation and issue first. So if someone wants to talk to you, learn more about offering payment plans, what's the best way to get in touch to follow your work? Um, you talked about some CE. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing or where the people can find you? Well, yeah, we, we are uh, at vetbilling.com. They can find everything there. Uh, we do have our CE course up that anybody can take and get a CE credit. It's race approved. Uh, we're in the process of redoing uh, our CE course. It's got to be, uh, uh, we're going to update, uh, especially with the economic data. You know, uh, because, again, I keep on coming back to people look at the economy is doing so well, but wages really haven't increased all that much. You know, they, they say about wages have for the last year have gone up 1.3 percent, but inflation is going up almost 2 percent. So um, and or the number of hours people are working have been cut back. So wages really aren't increasing that much. And um, I'm trying to, we're trying to educate the profession just because they, this animosity has to stop between the vet and the pet owner and vice versa. And just because somebody can't afford your services uh, upfront doesn't mean they, just because they can't pay you upfront doesn't mean they can't afford your services. You have no buy, there's too much uh, uh, judging people that because they don't have the money up front, that they're bad pet owners. And But you have no idea that I might have just had to spend $2,000 to have my car fixed and that depleted my savings and or my credit. You don't know everybody's individual financial situation, but there's a lot of judgment going on. And from the vet side to the pet owners and from the pet owners to the vet side, pet owners don't understand what it costs to run a practice. They don't understand that the practice has the same, if not more equipment than human medicine, and that they can go to a veterinarian and have four things done in one location, whereas in human medicine, I gotta go to my primary care, 
Then I got to go to another place to get my uh, blood work done. Then I have to go to another place to have an x-ray done. Then I might have to go to another, and then I have to go to another place to have my dental work done. I got to go to four different locations where in a practice, they're all right there. And the pet owners don't understand that. So it's trying to educate both set sides of the, the equation on uh, to alleviate this animosity that, that there is and to basically stop this economic euthanasia of pets that's, that's not necessary. So that's our main goal is trying to educate the profession as well as, as the pet owners. And yes, we would love people to use our service, but you don't have to. You can do it yourself. I'm just saying you need to do it. Open up your, your uh, mind and reevaluate re the business model. Because in one hand, the human health side has already done it. They have already embraced payment alternatives with payment plans or prepayment plans. Because people's the high deductibles people have to pay now. All hospitals are going to setting up payment plans so they meet the, their patients where they are financially. And that's our biggest struggle right now is educating the profession on how, they, how to meet their clients where they are financially. I don't think there's a better place to leave it there. Tony, thanks so much for joining me and helping ensure as a profession, you can provide more care and better care to all the different pets that are out there. So thank you for joining me. I appreciate it, Isaiah. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.